Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to remind you that my short story is available for free at johntilton.com. If you sign up for my newsletter, I'll send you both the ebook and audiobook of Doomed Dune. In this middle grade adventure, a girl named Melina travels to a forbidden landmark guarded by tyrannical robots, but her life turns upside down when she discovers the true reason it's off limits. Discover Doom Doom Secret by heading over to johntilton.com. That's J-O-N-T-I-L-T-O-N.com. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Cause of Craft. I'm your host, John Tilton. Why do we create? Where do our ideas come from? What does our craft say about us? These are the ideas we explore here on the show. Each episode, I interview a different guest, from writers and painters to musicians and filmmakers. Together, we investigate the creative process and the reasons behind why we create. My guest this week is Dan Taylor, a classical singer who has performed in a wide variety of groups, from Opera Philadelphia to The Crossing, a Grammy Award-winning choral group. Together, we cover a fun range of topics, from the intricacies of opera singing to tabletop gaming. We also discuss how challenging creative work can be, especially when that voice inside your head keeps reciting an endless stream of self-doubt. Dan shares his methods on combating those thoughts, including imposter syndrome. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing your favorite episodes with a friend. Doing so really helps the show grow, and I appreciate your support. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. It's great to have you on. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. There's a lot to talk about, and I wanted to start with one of the ways that I knew you. So we went to middle school, high school together, and I knew you as someone who was a big Lord of the Rings fan, and we'll talk about (laughs) things related to this later, but you were just this incredibly gifted cellist. And I wanted to ask you why the cello, especially like we had band in school. And so it was like the the string instrument usually wasn't what people just like picked. Like I was a trumpet player because, oh, there's a trumpet section. Now there wasn't a cello section, (laughs) but you weren't the only string person either. So I'm always curious about what draws someone to a particular instrument, especially when it's one in the group setting that, might not be obvious at first. Sure. Well, I mean, that piece of it can be easily explained by the fact that I uh, was at a different school for elementary school. Um, oh, okay. So the school that I was at for elementary school had a strings program. Uh, so that's where I started. In third grade was when they introduced us to string instruments. I think actually funny that you mentioned trumpet. Uh, I remember being pretty set that I had, you know, I wanted to play the trumpet eventually, but we couldn't start brass and wind instruments until fifth grade which is the way that they did at the school. So in third grade, they came to us and like, hey, here's some string instruments. You want to try them? You want to learn how to play one? And so I was like, all right, I guess I can't play the trumpet until fifth grade. So I might as well start on something here. And uh, I they put a cello in my hands and I played it and was like, all right, cool. Yeah, this is fine. <laughs> and that's uh, more or less where it started. Um, and then coming to this other school where they didn't have an orchestra, um, yeah, I was I was stuck for a while playing cello in the I think it was the trombone section because that was what was easily transposable to cello. But uh, yeah, and then I, I was doing stuff with uh, with orchestras outside of school and, and and stuff like that. So in third grade, I'm imagining you know you describe it as they put the cello in front of you. This instrument's <laughs> it's probably twice your size in, as a third grader. So at what point does the cello becomes something that, oh, it's my holdover until they give me a trumpet <laughs> to, oh, I actually, I love this instrument. I want to pursue it a little more seriously than just, you know, something that I do as yeah, part of school. Sure. I mean, I think 
I by the time by the time I was like a a year or whatever into cello, I think I think my <laughs> my dreams of trumpet playing had had vanished. I it was it was an instrument that it, it wasn't a, a big school or anything, but um, but you know I was I was finding myself to be like proficient with it. I was you know jumping to the to the front of the group, so to speak. Um, me and uh, one other girl I remember were were sort of the you know we were little elementary school rivals with each other on the cello (laughs) (laughs) and it's yeah i just i just found a knack for it i guess and 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 like doing it and just kind of stuck with it what school did you go to to professionally start studying music and were you aiming to continue study cello or is this where you started to think about transitioning to voice as your primary focus yeah, so I had been in choirs and stuff uh, through most of school. I was doing basically as much music things as I could, as I could get my hands on in, in middle school and high school and whatnot. But I think I had started taking private voice lessons as well. I think it was my junior year of high school. You know, by that point, cello had been what I had been doing since third grade. You know, I had been going to like summer music camps every summer, uh, playing cello, uh, doing chamber music, doing orchestra stuff, doing um, you know, all these sorts of things. So I was pretty set that I wanted to be doing music. Um, but cello was the kind of thing that was, had been there for me, the big part of what I've been doing. So I did my, my bachelor's at the Peabody Conservatory down in Baltimore. Um, so music school. And I did that as, uh, as a cello major, basically over the course of my four years there, a lot of it was classic big fish, little pond thing to, to a degree. Um, I was used to, you know, I was, I was, playing in, in youth orchestras and stuff. And I was, uh, I had gotten into the Philadelphia youth orchestra, uh, my sophomore year in high school, I think, which is like one of the big, like really prestigious youth orchestras in the area. I, I got in and was, was first chair, uh, I think for all three years that I was there. Um, so I was used to being kind of the big dog, um, so to speak as a cellist. And then when I got to Peabody, uh, being a, you know, fully focused music school where people come from all over the world, I had a bit of a, of a reckoning there and was like, wow, all these people are way better than I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I forget if I had started right away, but I auditioned and sang with some of the choirs and stuff while I was there as well. Um, I started taking like lesson voice lessons as a minor and more or less discovered opera while I was there. I remember going to one of uh, Peabody's opera productions um, and I remember being struck by by how funny it was, <laughs> was the big thing that was like really surprised me, you know, because everyone's got the stereotype of of the, you know, the fat lady with the Viking hat yeah. <laughs> screaming her brains out on stage. That's, you know, that's what sort of everybody thinks of opera. But here I was going to see this opera and uh, it was a marriage of Figaro. People were cracking up laughing. It was really funny. It was it was cool. And so I started auditioning and singing for the the opera choruses um, while I was there. Basically, over the course of the four years that I was there, more or less had had made the decision that I was going to be switching to focusing on being a singer. In the most sort of cynical and pragmatic terms, uh, I think I saw myself having better luck as a tenor than as a cellist <laughs> in the world. <laughs> um, so I went on to do then my master's uh, at Temple here back in Philly. As a as a vocal performance major, 
you come into it knowing something about voice, but again, it, it feels like you were so in the cello world that it's almost like, like I know this from talking to other creatives and I'm curious if you have sort of a similar experience where you kind of know one type of thing and you see how difficult the path is because you're so well-versed in it. Mm-hmm. And then this other thing pops up and you're like, well, I could, that seems that seems easier. Like you describe it as an easier path, right? But right, then right. you get into it and then there's all this depth that you had no oh, idea. Absolutely. Oh, I got to build from nothing. So I guess what difficulties came up when you made that switch and what didn't you expect to be difficult about pursuing voice that ended up being a challenge? One of the things that I feel like I'm I'm still grappling with and, and will probably be grappling with for, for a long time is voice is, is such a I mean, it's such a difficult instrument, really, <laughs> um, because with something like cello, everything is is well. I mean, everything in air quotes, but most things are are external, right? And this is something that I, you know, not to go on too much of a tangent, but something I discovered as a teacher, um, where I was, uh, you know, teaching cello lessons, um, which is kind of just like a thing you do as a musician as you teach lessons. Um, and for, for a long time and still, I, I don't really teach voice lessons, um, <laughs> because I feel like I'm still learning so much about it myself, uh, that it's, it's harder for me to, to be able to try and pass that to a student. But, uh, with cello, it's easy to say like, oh, look, your, your fingers are in the wrong place. Your, you know, your bow grip is weird and you're doing this wrong and your posture is this way and blah, blah, blah and then fix those things with voice. Everything is internal you go to 10 different voice teachers and you get 10 different like weird and wacky, like interpretations of like, Oh, you got to think about the, the parachutes and the beach balls and the Ferris wheels. (laughs) And you know, like I all have these wild sort of metaphors that try and help you think about how to approach the, the voice as an instrument, you know, and then you've got people coming in from, from a, a, you know, the pedagogical side where they're talking about, Oh, you know, the formants and the, pharynx and the larynx and you know all this sort of scientific anatomical stuff and you so you throw that all in with it and and it's it's a lot to understand um it's a lot to grapple with um and because every person's voice is different i would maybe argue in a way that is more sort of severe than like just an instrument to an instrument um i don't know maybe people could argue with, with me on that but you know the voice is such an individual thing and each person is going to have individual issues and challenges to deal with, with their voice and, um, being a thing that is so, so connected to your, yourself, um, that, that brings a lot of challenges with it. Something I also noticed in talking with other singers, I specifically am thinking of the conversation I had with someone named Nicole Johnson. We talked about how it's also this like underappreciated art because in some sense, everyone has a voice and can sing they've sung somewhere and so sometimes when you see a really great singer you're just like wow they just are gifted with this incredible voice when in reality the work that you have to do to develop your voice to be able to sing like sure you might have a naturally good singing voice but to get to the level where you are now it's not just like oh yeah i i uh Sing, sing a little bit every day and now I'm an expert. You know, like if someone sees you playing the cello, they're like, wow, that's wacky and I have no idea how you do that. Sure. And then if someone sees you sing, they're like, well, I can sing too. But, but it's like not like that. Yeah. And, and the path to get there is unclear. Sure. Um, and I think that's that's particularly true when you're talking about opera because, you know, there's, there's a, a huge technical difference from someone singing, you know, a pop song or 
um, you know, even musical theater to an extent where anything you're doing, you're singing into a microphone, right? With opera, to kind of brag on the the art here a little bit, <laughs> you as a singer, you know, you are standing on a stage. You're not amplified at all, um, and you're sitting in, you know, depending upon what kind of uh, hall or opera house you're singing in, like the Academy of Music, I think is like 12, 1400 seats or something. Um, so it's like a big space. You're on stage, you know, maybe with other people not amplified. Like I said, you're singing all the way out to the edges of those halls, you know, everybody all the way up in the balcony, last seat's got to be able to hear you. They've got to be able to hear you over top of an orchestra. That amount of ability to be able to do that is something that's, that's, yeah, it's, it's dealing with a lot of, of, you know, the physical structure of how you're singing and you're bouncing your air and, and sound waves around in your head to, to do. Yeah. It's, it's, it's wacky. It's, it's really wild. Um, and it's, it's hard to do. <laughs> and, well, and it's interesting that you bring that up, uh, because it's almost like the reverse of what I was saying too, because so like, but, but still in sync with it. Right. So mm-hmm. it's that ability to develop your voice, to be able to do that. But then I would imagine to be able to, without amplification, amplify your voice like that. It, it, the, the thing that came to mind was, you know, maybe basketball players, you have to have a certain build to be able to be in the NBA dunking basketballs against <laughs> other basketball players. Right. I would imagine you also have to have kind of a big voice, like to be able to like I would imagine not every singer could train to be an opera singer. You have to have some sort of starting point and then develop from there too. I mean, I've heard plenty of people talk about, you know, like, Oh, I can train anybody to be a singer blah blah, blah and all this kind of stuff. I, sure. I don't know. I'm like I said, I'm not much of a voice teacher, but <laughs> um, there is a lot of complexity within, within opera in terms of, of, of what we call Fox um, or different voice types basically. So, you know, you've got anything, you know, speaking on a tenor spectrum, you've got anywhere, anything from, you know, what we uh, generally refer to as like a character tenor, which is a sort of lighter voice, which usually they're doing these sort of more comic roles and kind of bit parts and that kind of thing. Um, and moving up through sort of like lighter tenors that are typically singing like, you know, Mozart, and I don't know, I'm probably getting way too technical in all this, but, you know, up through like lyric tenors and spinto tenors and um, all the way up to, you know, like a heroic or a Helden tenor where any of those classifications is going to have a different, like that's, uh, that's a thing that like, Oh, you've got this type of voice. Um, and, and that's, that's a, like you're saying is a sort of innate thing. There is a, a spectrum to that, but, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, there, there is that sort of innate quality, um, to an extent, um, in terms of where you're fitting, um, so, you know, someone with a, a smaller, lighter voice is not going to be able to get up there and sing Wagner or like big, heavy, verity stuff. <laughs> and opera isn't just a musical performance either. It's also this narrative performance, yeah. <laughs> although I guess a case could probably be made that all music tells a story in some sort of fashion. But really, it's a different level with opera, um, mm-hmm. a more literal level, uh, especially just with the narrative and everything like that. Was it difficult to learn how to add performance into <laughs> your singing? Uh, yeah. Did you have background with that too? How? What was that part of it like for you? Yeah, I, I had a little bit of, of background. I did some some theater stuff when I was in, in uh, I guess, mostly middle school and a little bit in high school. Um, 
I remember reading an article one time, I forget where it was, but um, they were sort of going at the whole like um, brain surgeon versus rocket science debate um, and making the point that actually um, opera singers are probably one of the most complicated professions, um, <laughs> which is, you know, which is interesting because like you're saying, so all of that stuff I was talking about sort of training the voice and developing the voice and learning all of that, that's just one piece of what we do as opera singers, right? So when we're on stage, we've got, we've got that to be thinking about, you know, making sure, you know, technique and all that is down solid. Yeah. We've got acting to think about, um, both with your, with your body, with your face, with how you're singing, you know, transferring that into the way you're, you're singing something with that comes having to memorize not only just a, a giant score of music, but, you know, having memorized blocking and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, that, that stuff that actors do. And then also on top of that uh, is the uh, the language piece of it, right? So the big four, I guess, is usually what you see in opera in terms of Italian, French, German, and English. Um, and then there's some other operas. There's plenty of operas in Russian um, and you know other other languages past that. But as opera singers, we're expected to be able to, for one, know every word of what we're singing um, so that you can act, even though it's in a different language. <laughs> um, we're expected to be able to pronounce everything as accurately as, as like a native speaker would and being able to pronounce all that in a way that it's, it's audible out to the house um, and all this kind of stuff. So there's, there's a lot, a lot of those pieces that go into all this. Um, so it's a lot to learn, a lot to digest. And I mean, obviously there's different people that, that help with different parts of that. So it's not like you have to be entirely responsible for all of that um, yourself, but it's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you're the one doing all of it. So <laughs> for the language bit of it, do you study those languages or are you focused really on how the language is used in the particular opera? Yeah. Typically, typically a college um, requirements for an opera singer is that you, uh, I think when I was transferring to opera, they had a requirement that we had to have at least one semester in each of those three languages. So French, Italian, German, then usually on top of like just a straight language class, um, is what they'll refer to as diction classes, which is rather than learning the precise meaning of, of, you know, any given language, you're learning how, how to properly pronounce things. Um, so there's all sorts of complicated stuff in there about, you know, how, how to pronounce, you know, vowels and, and consonants and, you know, how, how a lot of that is different from a native English speaker or whatever language you're coming from. And depending upon what language you're going to, there's things that are a lot less familiar. Um, you know, like some of the vowels in German are kind of wacky for English speakers. Um, the way that words are constructed in French is, is a little bit strange to a native English speaker. Each language has its own sort of idiosyncrasies that you have to be comfortable with. And yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> and what's this whole process like from, so so you audition for a role and you, let's say you get the role. Mm -hmm. What's the next step for you? Are are you then reading through the script? Like, do, does, does opera have a script? Do they have the, the score? Like, wh what's next? <laughs> yeah, I mean, typically if you're, you know, if, if you're, Sign on to do a role somewhere. A really good, <laughs> diligent opera singer will will do all sorts of things. But I mean, primarily, yeah, you're you're studying the score. The in opera, the 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 straight text uh, is what we call a libretto. But I mean, usually that's the, all that information is is there in the score. 
Um, so you'd have uh, a score with all the other singers and what they're singing and, and a sort of a rough reduction of what the orchestra is playing, you know, depending upon what the story is. Um, a lot, I know a lot of, a lot of singers who will go and like, Oh, uh, this opera is based on this book and, and whatever. So they'll go read the book and they'll go, you know, look, Oh, it's based on these historical events. Let me go read a little bit about that and do all sorts of stuff like that just to really get background on the characters, on the the setting, uh, those sorts of stuff. Cause again, sort of the acting piece of it, you know, sometimes it takes a bit to, to sort of get into the, the meat of, of the character and try and figure out, you know, yeah, I've got to memorize and or learn to memorize this whole score and, you know, figure out how all these notes go. But I've also got to figure out like, what, what is the character feeling in this moment? Like, why are they doing this? Why are they, why is the note that they sing here, this high note, um, you know, on this word, like, what does that mean for the character in this moment? And all this kind of, so yeah, I mean, it's pretty complicated, but it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of stuff that's, that's, that's fun to, to dive into sometimes. So. And it's not just music that excites you creatively here. You, you've also pursued this passion project recently, DMing Dungeons and Dragons, which <laughs> now I know some of our listeners are like, this is awesome. Uh, other people are like, what are they talking about now? For the second set of people, can you explain a little bit about what this is? Yeah, totally. Well, so first to be uh, to be entirely accurate, I've played games of Dungeons and Dragons. I don't GM Dungeons and Dragons myself. I use a bunch of other systems. But that's getting into semantics. I had always been, like, like you mentioned, sort of being a, a bit of a, a Lord of the Rings nut when I was in in high school. I I've always had a a, a decent, uh, you know, a good interest in in fantasy and and sci fi and that kind of stuff. So when I basically during the, uh, no, I guess just a little before, but. I would say during during the pandemic, as that was all going on, basically the entirety of the arts world was shut down because um, you can't do live performance, particularly singing where you're, you know, throwing your spit <laughs> across the stage at the audience. Can't do that during a pandemic. So most of that was was shut down. And I found myself, you know, I had been doing a couple of these these projects with friends and and whatever, but I found myself really digging into it during the pandemic when I didn't have much else to do uh, because I just had this sort of like. I don't know, I guess like an itch to create something. This uh, sort of tabletop stuff is what I turned to or what I found myself turning to really, um, you know, in in some significant ways. But kind of the main campaign that we're running is in a system called Dungeon World, um, which, uh, I mean, we have it sort of hacked out the wazoo for our own purposes. Um, We've sort of (laughs) done a whole bunch of extra things. Cause I'm, I, you know, I'm always throwing myself way too far into these types of things. And so I can't be content with just like using a, a standard setting. I've built my own whole world out of this. I like draw my own maps and do all this nutty stuff. It's been, yeah, it's been kind of this, this bit of a passion project where I'm sort of taking all these games, all of them are taking place in the, uh, within the same world. Um, there's some like characters that cross over between them and, um, uh, stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's been really interesting and fun to sort of throw myself into that um, when I've got nothing else to do. <laughs> and, and the world building aspect is always so interesting to me. So I do novel writing and as I'm building the world, I'm making adjustments based on what the story needs and how to make it feel real, but then it's not out until it gets published. So I'm able to make changes on the fly and totally. things like this. And then, you know, go through it and have it prepared. I would imagine it's 
both more difficult, but also kind of exciting <laughs> to have this live world, right? That you're building the world with this live game. Mm-hmm. And when things come up, you have to kind of stick with the rules that you've applied and then yeah. remember all the new rules you're making. What's that experience like? And, and do you like that challenge? It's yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenge in some respects, but I, that's one of the things that I've always found uh, that tabletop role playing is, is really, really good at as a medium um, that not a lot of other things are um, is that, you know, I could be going along in the session and usually the, the way I approach it is to try and sort of uh, like set the table for my players basically. Um, And I love being able to, just sort of set all the pieces out on the board and maybe have a couple things like, Oh, if this happens, I could bring this in. If this happens, whatever. Um, but then just kind of put my players in that sandbox, so to speak, and sort of see what they do. <laughs> um, and then respond to that. Uh, cause one of the, like I'm saying that one of the really interesting and awesome things about tabletop games is that you could be going, uh, you know, I could be going on with this session and one of my players does something that I, did not in my wildest dreams expect them to do. And I suddenly have to be like, Oh, okay, well wait, that changes a lot of what I thought was going to happen or the way that I thought was going to, okay, fine. Let's roll with this, see what happens. And it becomes this really amazing kind of collaborative uh, storytelling. It's funny to hear you mention it this way too, because in, I'm sure all the other writers there are cracking up at this uh, because <laughs> so we introduced this idea as something that's like, oh, unique to tabletop and like, um, because you have this other person that you're playing off of, right? Mm-hmm. And so this the scale to that is definitely higher than it would be for novel writing, but there's there's especially a, in I don't know how how much you've heard people talk about writing before, but there's like the planners and the pantsers. So the planners, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like plan, sure. right? And the pantsers kind of go with the flow. Well, mm-hmm. um, when I'm <laughs> kind of a, I've yeah, never yeah. heard of those terms used before. That's that's good though. <laughs> so so I'm a kind of a mix of both, and it's funny to hear you mention this about playing off of the the people that you're playing the game with because it, now the writers don't know who this other person is it's funny uh Stephen King and his book on writing he refers to it as like the boys in the basement like there's just this like group of people that are like <laughs> in your brain somewhere that just like throw you curveballs as you're writing so it is interesting that creative process both on an individual level but then here again when you have someone who's separate from yourself you mm-hmm. know you you're able to mix things in that similar way, but almost to a different level because it's, it's someone whose brain is completely separate from your own that you're able to kind of collaborate with. Totally. Totally. With this side fun thing that you've been doing, (laughs) uh, have you found that you were drawn to that because you mentioned like your love for Lord of the Rings and things like this, and you like the world building, you also mentioned doing it during the pandemic, mm-hmm. at least increasing how much you're doing it during the pandemic. Did you find that pursuing this with your friends was a way to scratch some of the the itch of missing the live performance of singing? Or was it a completely different creative outlet that just felt nice to do something that was totally separate from what you were missing during that time? Yeah, I think I think it's kind of a weird mix of both. Um, (laughs) because it wasn't until I stopped, you know, was forced to stop, uh, live performance, um, that I, I realized 
how much of that I, I missed in that regard. Yeah. It was that sort of like, Oh, I don't have this outlet for, you know, for this part of me that is this, you know, this creativity. So I need to, you know, let me try and find somewhere else to, to point that. But yeah, it is also a, this kind of completely separate uh, avenue that, that is in a lot of ways, very different from an opera singer um, or the, the world of opera and that kind of thing. But I think it does, does come down to a bit of a mixture of, of both where I rolled more deeply into it because I was missing one thing, but, you know, I'm, I'm finding this, this other, this other thing here uh, that's, that's also giving me this, this measure of fulfillment or, or actualization or, you know, whatever you might call it. And going back to the opera singing, we talked about how difficult all this is, just the different levels of what you have to learn from different languages, pronouncing <laughs> those languages, performing, projecting your voice, acting, all this stuff. And through all of that difficulty, I'm, I'm sure some days it's like, you know, I could do this other normal desk job and, you know, maybe that would be easier, you know, especially when pandemics are happening and all these things. And I'm sure there's long hours of rehearsals and, and all of this and, and tough auditions. What is it about singing and opera that I guess keeps you going on a day-to-day basis and keeps you involved with it and keeps you saying to yourself, like, this is worth pursuing. This is why I love it. This is definitely something that I that I really found myself having to to grapple with a lot during the pandemic when when I didn't have uh, all of this, um, you know, and I've had I've had plenty of points in my life where, through random circumstance or whatever, like you know, another path was presented to me, and the appeal of that is not lost, um, <laughs> right? I <laughs> was remember when I was at Peabody one time, someone found a newspaper ad for, for someone who was looking for like a blacksmith apprentice or something. And I was like, (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) I was like, (laughs) it was not an easy thing to just turn that down. But, um, yeah, I mean, so, so one of the things I had to, to struggle with a lot is I've always been a person that has, has had a, a not insignificant amount of struggles with, um, self-worth and identity and um, especially as an artist um, like imposter syndrome and streaks of perfectionism and um, just lots of, of self-criticism and things like that. And when you're in this kind of really highly competitive environment um, it can be, it can be really hard to, to, to deal with that. I've had plenty of moments where, where I've, you know, sat there and thought to myself like, why am I doing this? Why, why am I not just like setting this down and going, doing something normal um, and, you know, making some money (laughs) Um, for a long time. The answer to that for me was, Oh, I have to keep going because, you know, I've had all these people tell me how, how good I am at this. You know, I've had all these teachers um, or, you know, all these, um, conductors or, you know, whatever people, people that whose opinion I trusted were saying like, oh man, yeah, you could really make a go of this. You could really do this. Um, and, and those sorts of things, you know, I had a lot of conversations with my wife, um, during the pandemic about this in terms of like, are you just doing this because you feel this responsibility from, from these, you know, voices in your head of all these people that have been, been telling you this, um, in, in a lot of ways, a difficult journey of really trying to discover for myself 
who I am as a person, as an artist, and what that drive to to create something means for me and what I mean what that is within myself. Um in a lot of ways it's been it's been really nice to to see and to find creative um creative outputs you know whether it's whether it's opera whether it's tabletop games whether it's world building you know whatever it is to to be able to see that as me feeling like I have something worthwhile to say um and putting that out into the world which is a really hard thing to be able to admit to yourself when for so long I've I've had so many um conflicting thoughts about like, Oh, you know, why are you still doing this? You keep, you know, failing at all these competitions and you keep, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you, you can't do this and you can't do that. And you know, all this stuff is wrong and you'll never get that bar. Right. And you know, all that kind of stuff. And to be able to say like, no, I, there's something in here that's worth saying and, and whether or not, you know, there's, there's somebody out there who needs to hear it. I feel like I'm trying not to hang on that, right? I'm trying to come to a place where I can say to myself, this is a thing that you feel is important to be doing. And even if there's, you know, nobody sitting out in the house, even if there's nobody on the other side of that Twitch stream, like this is still a thing that you enjoy doing that you can be proud of. And that makes it worth doing. And do you find that similar between both the tabletop and the opera? Like, I'm just thinking in terms of with the opera, are you viewing that as your personal interpretation and how you perform the work? Or is it more that you're participating in this grander work that's kind of beyond yourself and it's important to participate in that? Yeah. I I mean, again, I think it's a kind of a combination of both of those things because there's there's no matter what I'm doing, um, being the person that I am, there's always going to be part of me that's going to say like, oh, man, the way you sang that high note wasn't the best. You, you know, you lost your support there and you gave up on the note and it sort of faltered towards the end and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, there goes the end of that aria. You ruined it. Or (laughs) whether it's, oh, man, the the player gave you a really cool opportunity right there. But you, you know, you were so concerned about thinking of this other thing that you didn't see this really cool thing that you could have done right here or that that you, you know, oh, you should have rewarded the player in this way. And instead you went off and did this thing. You know, there, that's that's just kind of self criticism. That's always going to be really hard to deal with. And so there's there's that individual part of it where it is me sort of getting in my head and, you know, just ragging on myself um, about what I'm doing and seeing myself like, oh man, the the conductor is usually in a good mood, but when he saw you after the performance, he was, you know, kind of, you know, whatever. Maybe he didn't think you did a great job that night, or you know, things like that. Or, or oh, the way this player responded to me when we were doing this thing, you, you know, he seemed a little distracted or whatever. He probably wasn't paying attention because you know you're not doing a good enough job. Yeah. This, 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 whatever. It's, <laughs> you know. It, yeah, it's it's there it's there wherever I go. And and you know, that's that's not necessarily a reflection on, you know, one art form or the other. That's that's a reflection on me and that's something that I'm dealing with. Um but it's in times like that it is it is nice to be able to have those group dynamics in in either one of those situations to be able to um you know, to come alongside of other people and and to know that at whatever stage anybody else is at that 
you're always going through things with other people. One of the things that is, that can be really tough dealing with these sort of like, like I said, sort of high competitive fields in, in this type of a manner is that you so often only see like the finished or close to finished product of another person. And whereas for me, I like, I see all the, <laughs> I'm in my own head. I, I know everything that's going on. Um, and so when you're comparing yourself to, to other people, when, you know, it's, it's, it's that whole thing. Um, but being able to, to have the perspective of saying that everybody is in the middle of, of some kind of process um, to be able to get yourself out of your own head, I'm finding more and more is, is often just a matter of finding that perspective and zooming out a little bit and saying like, Hey, you may be feeling this way, but maybe the way that this person reacted to you is not, you know, because of what you did. It's because, you know, they had uh, their coffee was bad or something, or, you know, like, you know, it's being able to, to see yourself as, as part, part of that whole like that. And to, you know, that everybody is all kind of there struggling together <laughs> to put, to put something, uh, to put something out there to say something, to say something that's worthwhile. And that part of it, um, can end up being, being really rewarding in, in that respect and, and finding that, uh, camaraderie and that being part of the whole is, is, uh, is always, always really great. It, yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned like everyone else's kind of highlight reel. I had, uh, someone <laughs> named Brett Roundsville on the show, a couple episodes back and he described it as you're seeing everyone else's highlight reel and then you're unedited behind the scenes. Totally. Absolutely. And the, the other thing that stood out to me in hearing you talk about all this and kind of the struggle, like the artist struggle, right, is mm -hmm. is what you're describing. And it really is this double-edged sword because it's so vital to your own growth because mm -hmm. if you can't see what to improve, you're never going to get better in a million years. Even if people Absolutely. are trying to help you get better, you have to kind of have that critical eye and the humility to be like, okay, this can be better. Like when I feel that, you know, a lot of people describe it as imposter syndrome, and it's to me, it's always this guiding force of like, okay, I feel good about these parts and this is where I'm lacking. So I have to focus on this. But of course, it's, it's always the, the cat's moving under the rug because sure. as soon as you build up this part <laughs> that you thought was bad, well, now all the other parts you thought were good could be better. And it's this never ending cycle. But at yeah. the same time, that's why your performance five, 10 years ago it might've been great at the time, but, mm -hmm. but you've learned so much. And so you're always growing, yeah. but it's, yeah. but you, it's so hard to develop that right mindset to be, to be okay. That things are always in development. It's, it's yes. not necessary that you're going to hit this high note in your mind that you want to reach. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I found that the aim and enjoying the process of learning that's helped my mindset a lot yes. because because otherwise it's you're just always beating yourself up. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to find the fun in in investigating how <laughs> to get better and enjoy that, and then, but but not again. Don't beat yourself up too much, but still recognize mm -hmm. what's wrong or, or what could be better. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, I think what you were saying that people can relate to totally. Because and and that's one of the things that I've found really difficult about any kind of performance media. I mean, whether it's whether it's writing a book or or performing or whatever, you'll always have these like sort of frozen snapshots of 
a single point in your development, <laughs> right? And oftentimes you're forced to go back and, and look at those things. And sometimes it can be like really cringy because you're like, oh man, is that really what I thought was good at that point? <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean, exactly what you're saying. I, I think the, the thing that I've been trying to sort of come back to over and over again is to keep this mindset of I'm always learning, that I'm always trying to to learn something new. And, and part of that process is like you're saying, sort of being okay with being on that journey, being in that process. And as hard as it is sometimes to, to look back at those things in the past, it's, it sometimes can be, can be nice to look back at that and say, Oh, wow. Like look how far I have come, especially when you're, when you're in those points of like, oh man, like everybody's been turning me down for gigs and everybody's been, you know, I've been getting dunked on in all these auditions and whatever. <laughs> like, ah, oh, this is terrible. Like what, you know, to, to be able to say like, oh wait, but look, I have been improving. I have been taking steps forward in this journey, in this process. And like I said, I mean, that it's that, that perspective is sometimes so hard to get a, to get a grip on because it means having to get out of your own head. It means having to zoom out. But that's often what that point in that place uh, needs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Dan, thank you so much. This has been an extraordinary conversation. I've loved hearing all your thoughts and going back and forth about all these things. Now, you shared with me a couple of links to uh, some performances you did. Are you okay if I share that in the show notes or what's the best way for people to experience some of your work right now? I don't have a lot of, you know, like stuff, uh, up. I am, I'm working on putting a website together and, and some stuff like that. So I don't have a lot of like links and things to, to reference, but I mean, if you're, if you're curious to look into some of the stuff I've been doing, um, one of the groups that I do a lot of singing with, uh, is called the crossing. We've got a bunch of, uh, recordings out that you can, you know, get on Spotify or, or wherever. Well, great. Thanks again, Dan. It was a pleasure catching up with you and talking about all these things. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been, it's been a great time and I feel really privileged to be able to <laughs> come in here and chat with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cause of Craft. You can find links to listen to Dan's performance with The Crossing in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation about classical singing, then you'll love episode 16 with composer Amy Tanaka. We discuss the differences between composing a concert work and scores for film and television. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you get value out of this podcast, please consider sharing your favorite episodes with a friend. Doing so really helps the show grow, and I appreciate your support. If you have feedback, suggestions, or guest recommendations, send an email to john at causeofcraft.com. That's j-o-n at causeofcraft.com. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.